fear of the mail system isn't stopping people from asking for absentee ballots. We're on a record pace. That's one of the stories we'll be talking about on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Chris Warnowski and Laura Johnston. Thursday, it's been a short week, but it feels long, yes? Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> Isn't that every week, right? <laughs> every week just goes on and on and on. Okay, well, let's let's help abbreviate it with this podcast. How big a deal of it, how big a deal is it that Ohio highway officials are putting together the money to widen Interstate 77 and Fairlawn and Bath in Summit County? Laura Johnston, any highway widening is a big deal. This seems to be aimed at ending the kind of the log jams you get where it goes from three to two lanes down in your native land or almost <laughs> native land. So what's going on there? No, this is totally my native land. This goes right past my high school and they have been what? talking wait, 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 about wait, wait, wait. I thought you were from Canada. Well, okay. <laughs> All right. Very complicated. I moved to Akron when I was four. I moved to Bath when I was like six and I, so yeah that's my okay hometown. so you're you're redefining native land i would think right now you'd want to pride yourself on being from canada <laughs> I, am, I, I have a canadian flag next to my american flag outside but okay this is where i grew up where my memories are and this a highway goes right past my high school they've been talking about this expansion since i was in high school so this is really exciting to see we're talking about 125 million dollars total for two parts where they will widen it to three lanes um right from about the turnpike, then closing into right. That's where Summit County starts. And if you've ever driven that spot, that's where it comes from three to two lanes. All of a sudden, 271 dumps into 77. You've got to switch lanes, whether you want to get on or off, and it can get complicated. So the idea is this expansion is going to allow more traffic on I-77, which, as you know, runs from Canton to Cleveland and support economic development in the greater Akron region. This extra space will allow more people to easily live in Akron and work in Cleveland. 77 goes a lot further than Kent. Yes, I know, but we're talking about the Northeast Ohio section. So one of the questions I had on this, and we didn't have time to answer it, is was all of this money and construction predicated on traffic counts pre-COVID? Because there's a lot of thought that post-COVID commuting will be much diminished, that more and more people will be working from home. And I just wonder whether before they spend this money and people will make accusations that they're doing it and spreading sprawl, should there be a reality check to see if it's actually needed? Well, that is a really good question. We could probably ask that about a lot of different road questions and road money that we're spending. But they have, it wasn't like this was just an idea in the last couple of years. So this has been talked about for a long time. But you're right. If people want to live in Akron and work at a Cleveland company, they can probably do it from the comfort of their homes. But there's been a lot of talk. Steve Litt has written a lot of a lot of material about sprawl and how mm-hmm. it's bad for cities, it's bad for communities. We've seen during this coronavirus crisis that the air is much cleaner and and there's less need. So I this is a hugely expensive road project. Would we be better off if we took that 125 million and put it into bike lanes for all the people that bought bikes during the pandemic. It just seems odd to me that that a $125 million project like this would be announced in the middle of the pandemic before we know what the new reality is. Yeah, I don't disagree with you. I think that's a very legitimate question to be 
asking. I do want to say that I don't think this really pushes sprawl, considering that that corridor is busy anyway, and there's people living along it. It's not like we're going out into Ashtabula and wanting people to drive to downtown Cleveland. Um I remember Don Flasquale, like the mayor of Akron, used to say, you know, it's only about a half hour from downtown Akron to downtown Cleveland. But from downtown Cleveland, it's like an hour and a half because people think <laughs> it's so much better. Yeah, we look, we've all, I'm sure, been stuck in traffic there at the wrong time of day. But I haven't been down there in a long time because no need to be. I just wonder about it. I know all the officials that reporter Robin Goyce talked to, they're ecstatic about this. They believe it'll be an economic development boon and and it's exciting and they've been working on it for years. It just seems like we should have a reality check right now on the money. Maybe we should ask Mike DeWine about that during the briefing today. It's this week in the CLE. How can people watch the funeral of slain Cleveland police detective James Skernovitz now that we know the service at Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse will be closed to the public? Chris Wanowski, they had to move this funeral from their original announced location of the cathedral in downtown Cleveland. Why is that? Partly because of the need to be responsible and socially distance. But um, I believe the other reason is they do anticipate a pretty significant turnout from other law enforcement. They did say that the funeral is going to be closed to the general public, which honestly, I was kind of surprised you know, when, when they made the decision to move it to the rocket mortgage field house, I, I was like, Oh, maybe they're going to have a, a public component to this, but they said, no, it's going to be invite only for uh, family, friends and colleagues and other invited guests. But if, if you want to watch it, they are, uh, they are going to stream it on the Cleveland police department's Facebook page beginning at uh, 11 AM tomorrow. So there, there's that way to watch it. There has been some talk about them maybe setting up a, a large screen outside of the event for overflow. So, you know, that area between Progressive and, and Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse, if you remember when they had like the all-star game, you know, they, they had a bunch of stuff uh, sort of crammed in there in the middle. And I think that's they've talked about that, but I don't know if they've actually officially said that just yet. And there's not going to be a procession to a cemetery, but there will be a procession from the funeral home where the visitation is down to Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse, right? Yeah, that'll start at nine o'clock in the morning over on uh, Bagley Road. And that's usually, I mean, it's usually a pretty impressive thing to kind of see. I mean, the last time we had, you know, to cover one of these unfortunate events, the, the, you know, we, we, did a whole photo spread on how, how many different police cars from different communities had showed up here. And it was a lot, you know, so, you know, there's talk of some notable people coming this week, but you know, none of that has been pinned down or confirmed just yet. So, you know, we'll, we'll still be working on that today and, you know, we'll be obviously covering it tomorrow. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll probably have the live stream, uh, linked on our site as well. So if you're having trouble finding it on Facebook, we'll, we'll have it somewhere, but yeah, because um, he was a member, a recently joined member of the, the operation legend federal task force. It, it wouldn't be surprising at all to see some federal high ranking justice. Department. It is an election year. So, so there, you know, there is the possibility that we could have some, some federal administration guests here. So, so we'll, we're, we're still working on trying to pin that down, but you know, we'll, we'll, we shall see. 
Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. Was July's record haul by Ohio casinos and racinos a fluke, or did the record setting continue in August? Laura Johnston, you need not look no further than what we're about to talk about to say that gambling is an addiction, because while almost everywhere else where people gather has been thinned down by the coronavirus pandemic, gambling is in full force. Absolutely. This is not a fluke. Apparently, 2020 is the year of gambling. They're gambling on the future. And coronavirus is good for business, I guess. So Ohio's 11 casinos and racinos set an August record of $172.1 million in gambling revenue. That was after a record July. And it's up about $7.7 million from the previous August, which was also a record in 2019. So And this isn't just post-pandemic people looking for something to do. The gambling records have been set for each of the four full months in 2020. So we are only not setting records when they weren't fully open. Um, And actually, I didn't expect this. Hollywood Casino in Toledo led for the second month in a row. They took nearly $23 million. But here's probably the reason. The casinos in Detroit were closed at the time. Yeah, that's what happened in uh, the previous month, too. I'm just surprised at this. And I know the casinos have done a lot because it's lucrative to try and keep things safe. And and from what we hear, there's a lot of sanitization going on. But in almost every other walk of life, people are being careful, more careful about going places uh, than, than before the pandemic began. So for the casinos to be breaking records just boggles my mind. I wonder if it just reflects a a kind of a sense of hopelessness that people are looking for the big score or if they're just bored out of their minds and this is something they can do. I have a quick question. This is Chris Wernowski. Is there any indication that more people are going or is it just that more money is is being uh, taken in by the state? You know, is it is it fewer people losing more money or, (laughs) you know? I don't, I, think mean, I, measure, I, I don't think you I don't, can get a measure of that. that, that uh, that's a great question. That. Yeah. But, but, but is that, but, you know, I guess my question is because, you know, we haven't seen any contact tracing from the state. It, it's, it's difficult to imagine when you hear a story like the story from Sturgis, the motorcycle rally, uh, the, the, the amount of super spreading that's going on there. Like I, I find it hard to imagine that, we've had an honest telling of, of what's happening at places like casinos. And, and I'm not saying that casinos are bad. I just like, it would be interesting to see if, if there's any indication that there's, there's been any, any viral spread as a result of, of this, you know, but we, I, but you're right though. We have not heard. I mean, we, it was funny a few weeks ago, we talked about, we had not heard of any spread really from, from people who fly. And then the study came out shortly thereafter showing that that actually there's some safety things going on in airplanes that might prevent the spread. We have not heard. I mean, we've heard a lot of anecdotal evidence mm-hmm. about how this is spreading, but we have not heard anything tracing yeah. back to a casino. So, I, I, and look, they have a huge profit motive to keep this happening. So I, you got to know they're taking lots of steps, but you're right. It, you know, we, the state has contact tracing data. We've talked about this before. They, they claim it's not searchable, but they're doing nothing to make it searchable. It's something we keep fighting for. Cause, but I, cause but I think that, that that's what's nice about a casino. And, you know, I mean, as somebody who doesn't gamble, I, I, you know, I'm loath to, <laughs> to say there's great, things about casinos but it they they are generally 
wide, if you go into them, they're wide open. So, I mean, they do have room to spread out a little bit, but you know, I'm hard pressed to figure out why, why we're setting records. Maybe people just feel like this is the end and you can't take it with you. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Okay. <laughs> we'll leave it there. It's this week in the CLE. Why do Ohio's U.S. senators have such differing opinions on a bill that is aimed at helping people cope financially with the coronavirus pandemic? Chris Ranowski, it's no surprise that Rob Portman and Sherrod Brown have very different takes on the, the, the relief bill that's been floated in the Senate. Uh, so what is their difference? So Sherrod Brown has expressed some concern that the uh, coronavirus relief bill that Republicans plan to bring up uh, on the Senate floor uh, today is dead in the water because it would replace a $600 a week federal unemployment supplement that expired in July with a $300 a week payment. Um, right now, people are getting three hundred an extra $300 a week because the the president approved something in August that will expire sometime this fall. Um, and it's going to require, you know, an act of some other, you know, some other branch of the government to do something. Um, and, and the Republicans have proposed a, this $300 a week supplement. Portman said that he was citing this uh, congressional budget office report that concluded that 80% of the people who filed for unemployment when it was $600 a week collected more on unemployment than they did while they were working, which he deemed inappropriate. And he said that the $300 weekly payment would provide a safety net for people who can't return to work. And he, you know, he's, he's operates under the impression that people making $600 a week from the government would refuse to go back to their job. So this is, you know, giving them less money is a way to motivate them to. to well, wait, 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 wait. Let's be fair. One, Sherrod Brown says you're replacing 600 with 300. Actually, mm -hmm. as of right now, you'd be replacing zero with 300 mm -hmm. because people right. are getting nothing. And we did hear from employers that their workers with the supplement when added to the normal unemployment, because it, it's not just 600, it's it's what they're already getting. It was an inducement for them not to come back to work. I mean, that wasn't, that's not a fiction. There were employers that said, these people are making more money by staying home than they are coming to work. I, I, I don't know if 300 is the right amount, but if but if 600 is too much to do it, there's got to be somewhere to do it. I, it's I, interesting that, that Sherrod Brown is thrown down because based on how polarized the country is right now, the likelihood is people will get nothing then. If if the House or if they can't get this through, we'll go to the election with no relief for anybody. Is Portman does Portman have a point that this is better than than nothing and it solves some problems that we all agree on? Well, I you know, I believe that if you believe three hundred dollars is enough, then yes, Port Portman does have a point. Like from a you know, if you want my opinion on this, the fact that six hundred dollars a week is is more than some people were making tells me that we probably should, you know, raise the minimum wage and allow people to make more than six hundred dollars okay, a week. But that's not that's, that's not my question. That's not my question. Okay. My my question is given the politics, pragmatically mm -hmm. speaking, is this the is this the best hope to give people something? Because because you if your option is <clears throat> What Portman's doing with the 300 and helping schools and all the other stuff that's in there or nothing, 
you know, should we do the something? Is it right to throw down and say, no, it's not enough. I'm not voting for it. I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of thing, you know, because, you know, $300 isn't going to be enough. So I, I, for some people, and, and I think to sort of try to get into the head of Sherrod Brown, who would say no to this bill, is it a better optic for during an election year to say you're fighting for more money for people? Or is it better for them to say, well, here's something, I guess you can't complain about it. So, But, but, but I, I again, that's politics. What's right. best for the people? You're I not going to get the 600. The House passed that. The Senate won't pass it. So it's dead. Mm-hmm. So, so the Senate is passing something now. Is, is this way forward? I, it's, look, it's an interesting debate. Do you try and give something to the people or do you go for the optics and say, you know, we got to get a new, a new set of legislators in there? I mean, look, the I mean look, it's like, it, it, anyway, it's, it's unfortunate that, you know, we're obviously playing politics with people's, you know, livelihood yeah. is, is they're yeah. trying to, is they're trying to make ends meet and what, like, what, a, what a sad state that we're talking about, you know, $300 for people when, you know, there's still like, you know, hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars of unaccounted money that just got thrown down Wall Street. And all these other companies. Yeah, I know. I look, in, a perfect like world, it, in a perfect world, we'd be helping people survive this fully. It's just there's a there's always the pragmatic. And given how divided this country is, yeah, you know, there's not a real clear path forward. Anyway, good discussion mm-hmm. it's this week in the CLE. Who's the influential voice who announced she is leaving the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Wednesday? Laura Johnston. This is kind of a big deal for Cleveland's signature institution. It's the only one in the world. uh, And she has a big role. Who is she and what has she done there? Yeah, so... This news came yesterday that Karen Herman, the vice president and chief curator at the Rock Hall, um, is going to be leaving. She's worked there since 2014. And this announcement comes just after a series of budget cups at the Rock Hall, layoffs, pay reduction because of drop in income because people aren't going. She says that's not related. She just wants to take a step back and figure out her next step. Uh, she said she's been working for 30 years and this is, is time. But she's done a lot in her six years at the Rock Hall. She incorporated video interviews and storytelling into a lot of exhibits. She oversaw an oral history project. She helped transform the Rock Hall's interior design. She did the big red long live rock sculpture in the Rock Hall's Plaza, which I think everybody has seen at this point, and played a role in some of the big exhibits like Interactive Garage, uh, which I know you love, uh, Chris Quinn, and uh, the Power of Rock Experience, that video that's so loud and that seats actually shake. Look, she, the, it, we've chronicled this. The, the Rock Hall over the last five years or so has been successful beyond imagination the, before the pandemic. The numbers were going up. The revenue was going up. A big expansion was planned. That you know They had had, like you said, major exhibits that, cost, that brought them a huge attention. So, so her leaving is a pretty significant loss. Does she say why she's leaving, what she's going to do next? And do we know anything about who will replace her? I don't know who about replacing her. She just said she'd been working for over 30 years straight. She said it was a good time to stop and think of what my next act will be. So um, maybe she'll surprise us. Wow. Well, that's a, it's a big loss. We'll have to see who is next. You're listening to this week in the CLE. 
How many people have now been accused of sex crimes as a result of the DNA analysis of rape evidence kits that had sat untested for many years? Chris Ranowski, Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer did some signature work over the years about the untested rape kits. It was a national disgrace how many of these things were sitting around, and Cleveland was one of the leaders in getting it going. It's revealed a staggering number of rape suspects. What is the kind of milestone that's been hit? Uh, Yeah. So yesterday, the prosecutor's office here in Cuyahoga County announced that they have indicted more than 800 people uh, accused of sex crimes using uh, DNA pulled from sexual assault evidence kits that sat untested for years. So just some background, the office, uh, the office's sexual assault kit task force, which began in 2013 as a part of a push to clear this backlog of kits, They've indicted so many defendants, and the way that they do this is they they bring indictments against these DNA profiles even before they know the defendant's identity, and this allows prosecutors to go back and replace that DNA profile with once they identify who the defendant is and a match is made. That way, they can avoid the statute of limitations that exists that you know would mean that some of these cases could not go to trial if if they found who the person the the suspect was when he was the attorney general rich cordray uh, following investigations in other states and amid questions raised by the plane dealer over the number of untested kits in the cleveland police department's evidence room called called for local and state lawmakers to begin to address this issue of of these untested kits. And uh, then prosecutor Tim McGinty launched a task force after taking office in 2013 that had people from Cleveland Police, uh, Ohio Bureau of Criminal Investigations, the Sheriff's Department, Case Western, and the Cleveland Rape Crisis Center. And to date, they have opened 7,024 investigations that have resulted in and now 809 indicted defendants. So that's a it's a lot of work on, you know, something that was really, I mean, talk about a black eye. I mean, that's that's a I mean, that's a story. It's one of those things that I tell people like I this is one of the things that I knew about Cleveland before I moved here and it's not, you know, it's not what you want your community to be known for. Well, back well, back in 2013, I remember that our our columnist Leila Tassi working with former Plain Dealer reporter Rachel Cell were chronicling the race to get these people identified before the statute of limitations might expire on the prosecution. I mean, they were usually or sometimes within hours of of losing the ability to charge people. Uh, it was really dramatic. The, because of their work, I think Cleveland was one of the cities that, that launched forward on this before other cities, but other cities had the problem too. Detroit was was well known for it. Um, so in the end, it was work that made us all very proud, the power of powerful journalism. Uh, it's good to see that they're continuing to do this. I think the most striking result of this for me was the number of serial rapists that were unknown before they tested these kits that they found. And and what it said is if they had done their job at the time, they probably would have solved the cases before these guys had multiple victims and prevented right. some women from being There's raped. A- there, I mean, yeah. So there's an interesting statistic in here that says that there were 809 defendants that include 906 victims. So that tells you that some of these people who have been indicted were multiple offenders. And yeah. and, you're, and you're right. I mean, it's 
you know, I mean, you can point to things like the Anthony Silwell case where, you know, you see these lapses in the investigations that could have resulted in, you know, sparing a lot of people a lot of harm. So, you know, hopefully they have this issue under control. And, you know, that that seems to be some positive news on this front out of the prosecutor's office. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. How did it go for Cleveland Public Schools Tuesday, the first day of the new academic year, with students learning remotely in a much more organized fashion that they were able to do in March? Laura Johnston, Eric Gordon really poured himself into the idea of remote learning, getting this one platform for all the schools, really working with a lot of organizations to provide the tech that students need, especially kids in poverty that might not have access to it. So how did it go? I know it's early, but what's the early word? <laughs> early word is is so far so good. It's a lot smoother than I think it was in the spring. Like a lot of districts, if you can remember what DeWine originally said back in March is he called it a three-week spring break. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, wait, we got to teach these kids. And it was very haphazard. Now the district has a very detailed plan. They're spending the start of the school year making sure that teachers, students, and parents are comfortable with this technology, that they get into a good routine so that they can really teach these kids um, to d- address the digital divide. Cleveland schools did work with a bunch of nonprofits. The city of Cleveland got involved as well. So CMSD brought about 27,000 laptops and tablets. They got 13,500 Wi-Fi hotspots. And this is for 40,000 students. So, I mean, that's a good portion of them. They paid about $11 million for the devices and $3 million for uh, the hotspots. So they are very prepared for this. The district is going to do check-ins with each student to assess any challenges. They're going to record lessons so that students can watch them on their own time if they miss. They're going to be taking attendance. They're going to be really checking in. And this is going to last for at least nine weeks before they reassess and see if they're going to go to a hybrid plan. I have to imagine that if you were an education researcher, this would be the most dynamic time of your life because of what we might learn from things like this. This is this is like a massive experiment that we were forced into. Nobody would Nobody would intentionally experiment with a student's education, but forced into it. You got to wonder, does it make a difference in Cleveland if you remove the possible trauma of fear of violence because the kids are home, does that change the dynamic of education or are there other factors in the home that make it worse? The, and I also wonder, will these platforms that have been developed for home, home teaching, will they start to do more innovations so that each kid is getting almost individualized attention because the computer can tell in real time how they're doing? I just... I have to imagine that the data we can get from this period is is going to help advance the cause of education in some okay. way that you can't even see it. <laughs> can I just put in two caveats there at, at wearing my parent hat? It's that still it is very hard for kids to be on Zoom on a computer screen staring for six hours a day, even if they have breaks. So I think that focus is very difficult for kids' brains. Also, you're typing in math answers to math problems on a screen. It's not the way it's working so far. And I hope they address this is that it's not encouraging kids to write out their work on paper and pencil because everything is something you enter like data with keys. So I think there's still got to be a little balance with that. Right. Look, I, there's deficiencies here. There's nothing like having a teacher working with a kid. I just wonder whether 
pairing the teacher with the technology, with what we're learning, things like you just mentioned, will this advance the cause of education once we, we get beyond it and it's no longer forced? I hope there is money being set aside to do the research because we'll never get another view like this. Every district is doing things slightly differently. Who's doing it right? Who's doing it wrong? What can we possibly learn? Uh, and Cleveland schools will be a great test case because Eric Gordon, the CEO, put a lot of thought into it. I get it. This is uh, Chris Warnowski. We, I, we had like a, a conversation about this yesterday. And I think what will be kind of fascinating to see is that this kind of breaks down the sort of barriers between districts and, and, and some of the impediments to failing school districts. I like one of the things that, that I feel like we have an opportunity to deal with. And, and, and you're right. The window will close quickly if we don't take advantage of this is we could actually bring equitable education to everyone. And, 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 you know, and, and one of the things we talked about is just how, how this creates like a borderless school system where, you know, all of these divisions that are divided up by community, by, you know, by tax levy, by all of these things that sort of create this inequitable education system that we have in this country, the state and in this county, you know, there's an opportunity here to see if there is a way to bring a, the same level of high quality education to everybody. And, and I don't know, I, you know, I wonder if there are people in positions in our education system who are thinking about that and who are, are looking at the possibility of maybe there is a bigger, different way to do this for like, everyone. Like consider, say, say Rocky River knocks it out of the park, right? They, that they, they are the ones that figure out how to increase the, the level of education remotely. So that if you're a Cleveland kid, and and the money that the state provides to Cleveland for your education could go to Rocky River and Rocky River schools saw this as a way of 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 generating more revenue to build their system and they could welcome students because they don't need the classroom space for it. It gets into what Chris said. You break down the geographic boundaries. How many more kids could Rocky River educate if they were getting the resources that are spent in failing school districts to work with those kids if they're remote. Look, it's pie in the sky kind of thought, but we're at this this very unusual moment where we can ask these questions and get some answers. I just hope that the research is being done. Anyway, we're having some good discussions today. <laughs> this week in the CLA. Okay, how many people have requested absentee ballots so far this year, and how does that compare to the 2016 presidential election? There's a big conflict going on here, Chris Wernowski. There's the the anxiety about the mail system created by President Donald Trump, who's advocating people vote twice. And then there's this fear of the coronavirus, which has a lot of people requesting absentee ballots. What seems to be winning out here? Are we on a record pace? Um, yeah. So right now, as of, I believe, yesterday, that more than a million Ohioans have re requested to vote by mail for the upcoming presidential election, which is uh, already near the total number of mail-in votes cast in November 2016. I mean, this was uh, probably going to be a high turnout election anyway, but I think the coronavirus really sort of prompted more people to request these absentee ballots. Um, and and 
you know, so over there've been over a million that have been requested. The majority of them are from t- typical domestic voters, and a portion of those are from military people who are overseas who always have to vote by mail. And that compares to, let's see, there was uh, 1.2 million domestic Ohioans who cast absentee ballots by mail uh, in the November 2016 election. And um, but LaRose said they they've expected a record number of of mail in votes cast this year due to the concerns of in person voting. So those numbers aren't really a surprise. Um, so, you know, and the state, the state is really trying to get the word out on that. They sent out unsolicited absentee ballot applications to 7.8 million registered voters in Ohio. And so, you know, we'll see, I, you know, I, I'm sure they're anticipating they're going to have quite a significant turnout on November 3rd, despite the fact that, you know, the virus is still teeming through our community. This might be skewed a bit this year because of, the heavy pressure by elections officials to to people to get in their requests for absentee ballots early. So, yeah, there so, was that there there was that warning from the postal service to a number of states, including Ohio, that you know you, you know they're do it early, you know, and you know do it as soon as you can because you know there are going to be delays in the mail, whether they're real or concocted for specific political purpose. But you know they're there has been an effort to a, a very, very public campaign to get people to do this and to do it as soon as possible. So, yeah, you're right. So part of the reason we're already at a, a significantly high number is is because, you know, probably because of that effort to get people to do it. The I'll be interested. We won't know this for months, but I'll be interested to see how many of those people that get the ballots actually use the mail to send them back versus going downtown and dropping it at the Dropbox themselves. I assume they track that, right? I mean, they they will be able to provide us with that number. I hope so. It's not the Cuyahoga County Health Board, so, you know, (laughs) they should provide the numbers. They don't generally keep their work product secret like the Health Board does. One of the the things that I'm very curious about is how how many people are going to show up on October 5th when in-person voting starts. I I have a sneaking suspicion that you're going to see a pretty significant turnout on that day because people are going to assume like, well, I can get, get this out of the way and there won't be a lot of people there. And then they're going to show up and there's going to be a lot of people there. So hopefully, hopefully we do a story that compares the first day of in-person voting between this year and 2016. Yeah, we'll definitely be there. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. All right, good discussions today. Lots of uh, lots of stories popping, keeping us uh, busy. And now it's Thursday, and there's always news on Thursday. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens to this week in the CLE. We'll be back on Friday.